Morning, everyone. It was 1991. The New England Journal of Medicine attempted to evaluate resuscitation attempts. Although the study was designed to evaluate resuscitation attempts on ones that had previously failed en route to the hospital. Individuals that had experienced a cardiopulmonary arrest. 185 people were examined in order to look at the efficacy, if you will, of is it worth it for the hospitals to try and resuscitate an individual who had suffered a heart attack and they had previously failed in their attempts in the ambulance. Of the 185 that were examined, only 16 survived in order to be admitted to the hospital. Of the 16, every single one of them passed away. Now, at the risk of sounding somewhat grim when it comes to this Sunday morning celebration in many respects, I need to be real with you. As the old saying goes, in general, when death comes knocking, the dead do not come back to life. Even if and when God, by His hand alone, that is, apart from any thought that man has power to heal, even if and when, God seems to rescue, by way of miracle, someone that seems to be dead. Death is still on the horizon for us all. That is, unless with one exception. The Lord raptures His church in our lifetime. That would be a wonderful thing. Nonetheless, again, once the physical body dies, it no longer experiences life as we know it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, many of you could quote it. It's appointed unto man to die once and then face judgment. With that said, I want to make a connection in the spiritual realm, from last week and what we discussed in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, man is radically or totally depraved. Why is that the case? We examine that in detail. It's because he is rotting, dying, decaying, buried in his trespasses and sins. There is no hope for spiritual resuscitation, if you will. To quote our doctrinal statement here at this church, man is utterly unable to remedy his lost condition. Having said that, 
Why is this certainty of deadness so critical to grasp? Well, last week we we spoke about why it's critical to grasp with several illustrations. Whether it be the darkness of a cave or the desolate surface of the moon. With those types of understanding, the divine glories of God's salvation illuminate even brighter. Amen? Pastor Paul Washer describes it as such, if I give you another illustration, and I quote, It is only against the pitch blackness of the night that we see the glory of the stars. And it is only against the pitch blackness of man's radical depravity that we can begin to see the glories of the gospel. So, in light of this inescapable morbidity, darkness, hopelessness, what are we to say? What are these glories of the gospel as Washer alludes to? Paul already has laid them out for us in in chapter 1 in that great, divine, united, lengthy sentence of 202 words in the original language. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. The glories of God the Father's sovereign election. His perfect redemption and forgiveness through His Son. And the sealing of our inheritance through the Spirit. All three members of the triune Godhead working together in unbreakable harmony and unity to rescue or resuscitate, if you will, dead Sinners. And now, here in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul begins to expand even more on this glorious rescue of sinners. You see, the dead do come back to life. In the same way that Jesus called forth Lazarus from the tomb. Or the prophet Ezekiel's vision as he saw Yahweh breathing life into dead bones, spiritually speaking, what is dead will be called back to life for all those in whom the Father has given to the Son. We will be called from being a child of the devil to the child of God. We will be called from going from enslaved to sin to obviously desiring to be enslaved to Christ. Born again. As Jesus says in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom 
God. And this can only happen through a supernatural resurrection. To quote our doctrinal statement again here at Miriam Christian Chapel, a supernatural regeneration by the Spirit, end quote. By Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, through Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. God rescues sinners. That is the force of this passage in which we will unpack here today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. A passage that begins with two words, but God. Two words that are sort of like a divine defibrillator. Boom. Shocking life back into the dead man. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Having said that, why would God choose to rescue sinners with such a gift? To quote the Puritan Richard Baxter, he framed this thought as such, and I quote, So then let deserved be written on the door of hell. Every single one of us understand that sign. But on the door of heaven and life, the free gift. Everything that God ordains, He does so with perfect, specific, intimate, purposeful design. Today, I want us to examine that purpose behind his rescue of sinners. With that said, if you're not already there, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, if you would stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. The title of today's message is, The Dead Come to Life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 is our text, which is the authoritative, inspired, inerrant, infallible, living word of God. Let us hear from him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. 
This morning we're going to look at three demonstrations of what is the purpose, a demonstration of what is the purpose behind God's rescue of sinners. That said, the first demonstration, looking at verses 4 and 5, is number one, to demonstrate His mercy. To demonstrate His mercy. The great 20th century Welch preacher, you guys have often heard me quote, I love much of his work, you would do well to learn from this man, Martin Lloyd-Jones. In his expositional series on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as he focused upon verse 4, he said that these two words, but God, could in essence summarize the entire gospel. This is a massive transition from what Paul has just laid out in verses 1 through 3 concerning the radical depravity of man. This is a transition which gives that radically depraved man a life jacket of hope. With that said, let's dive a little deeper and look at verse 4 to begin with. Let me read it again. Let it resonate deep down within the core of your every being. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice the two adjectives that Paul uses to better define and describe mercy and love. Certainly there's a a greater emphasis being placed whether it is rich for mercy or great for love this is a plentiful abundant and magnificent mercy and love be that as it may if our focus in this first demonstration is the abundant mercy of God What does that look like? What is mercy in our lives? How is it so abundant and plentiful? How does it drive us in the lives that we live entangled in sin? Certainly we'll see more of what it is and what it entails in the next verse, verse 5. But before we get there, let me give you two pictures. You don't need to turn there, but in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we hear of this mercy. Paul, in that letter, says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So here, in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, concerning mercy, we begin to see that this is something that relates to God's choice to save. That is, to give to undeserved sinners what they don't deserve. Clearly, no amount of works could ever suffice. Or let me give you one more. Relating to what is mercy. 
One which ties this word mercy to its Old Testament equivalent. A Hebrew word which is indeed powerful. A word that describes Yahweh, God the Father, his covenantal faithfulness and loving kindness. Listen to the use of this word by David in Psalm 51, verse 1. Contextually, this is in the midst of his sin with Bathsheba. So he needs mercy. And David says in Psalm 51, verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. That's the word. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Have you been there? I know I have. So whether it's the regenerating work of the Spirit or David's request or plea, you might say, for mercy, one question. What in all reality does mankind deserve one word judgment for if you have broken one of the commandments you've broken them all for there is none that is righteous not even one much like verses one through three from last week this is crippling News. But God, being rich in mercy, granted leniency. And that's another key word that helps us to define what is mercy. He granted leniency to you, brother, sister, in Christ. If the wages of sin is death, which it is. If the consequences of sin is judgment, which it is. How do we respond to such leniency as that? Maybe it begins with Luke chapter 18 as a great place to start. And the tax collector. When he said, be merciful to me, God. For I am a sinner. Just as what we saw and heard from Carson and Jeffrey here this morning. Nevertheless, how does God demonstrate this loving kindness, this leniency, this mercy as rich, abundant, and plentiful? Look again at verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, by way of a simple reminder from last week, dead means dead. Spiritually unable to respond That's the plain sense reading of the text. 
Not to mention, as we unpacked last week, the grammatical and the contextual force which supports it. Nonetheless, even when we were dead, hopeless news, God made us alive together with Christ. The greatest news, the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verb, made us alive, is the central verb and primary focus of this passage. That said, quick side note regarding Paul's use of the personal pronoun us with this main verb, made us alive. That begs the question, is he referring to the world, entire world, without exception? Of course not. Orthodox believers in Christ understand that we are not universalists. There are obviously men who are not and women that are not being made alive that will spend an eternity in their rightful place of judgment for their rejection of Christ and suppression of the truth. Chapter 1's already communicated the specific nature of God's electing choice. So regarding this us, what is it? This is a reference to all without distinction. Jews and Gentiles, God's rich mercy is special, intimate, and specifically purposed for His people. Why is that important? How does that impact our lives? For those of us who understand this leniency, Certainly it drives us to boast in God alone. Amen. To present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. For those who've not understood what it means to be made alive, no friend. God is no respecter of persons. I would say to you, much like the tax collector, humble yourself before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and cry out for mercy. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. So, why is this leniency, this rich mercy, So significant. Once again, it comes back to a biblical understanding of man's nature apart from Christ. Paul has already communicated that he is a child of wrath. It's his nature to sin, he's a slave to sin. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. Yet, God has made him alive together with Jesus Christ. 
following the divine picture of baptism, a fitting illustration for us here today. Paul demonstrates the significance of what this looks like from Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. You can reference it later. I won't, you don't need to turn there. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, states, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. It's like an apocalyptic thriller. The world is full of dead men walking. What's more, dead men that mindlessly pursue the lusts of their flesh. Yet, there's a blood of one that is the cure. The blood and the cure that rescues the dead, that resuscitates the dead. A cure that brings the dead to life. Now, I don't believe in a zombie apocalypse, but hopefully you get the point concerning God's rich mercy And its significance. Those who are in Christ have been made alive. Made alive in a way that they're no longer mindlessly enslaved to sin. This is the greatest emancipation, proclamation, so to speak, the world has ever witnessed. Death is no longer master over us. Mercy has set us free from its bondage. Glory to God. Clemency's been granted and the pardon sealed. Now, before I offer a thought for application, let me make a couple of brief comments concerning this monumental phrase at the end of verse 5, which you can see says, by grace you have been saved. I'm going to leave a thorough exposition of grace and faith for our next message. Now, you ask the question, why is that? Well, first of all, 
as many of you are aware, in some of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, God repeats grace by way of inspiration through the Spirit, through Paul, with the addition of faith in verses 8 and 9. We need to unpack this. It is overwhelmingly essential to the Christian faith. Grace alone and faith alone, two of the most cardinal truths in all of Christianity. It's not something that we can just gloss over on the backside of verse 5, having said that. Next time, we'll spend the entire message on verses 8 and 9 alone as we unpack grace and faith alone. With that said, though, coming back to how this impacts us, let me give you two thoughts. First, imagine being offered a pardon, a pardon for a capital offense, so to speak, a capital offense committed against the judge himself. Not to mention, the one who grants you the pardon is the son of the judge. And all he asks of you is to return your service unto him. Now, in light of such really on the surface, in a human sense, absurd leniency. I'm guessing that all of us would be driven to return the favor. That said, how will you return the mercy that has been granted to you, to others, Let alone, how will you return your allegiance and service unto the Son who has granted mercy, rich mercy, leniency, loving kindness? Luke chapter 6 verse 36 would be a charge for all of us when it says, be merciful as your Father Himself is merciful. So, if mercy was our primary focus for verses 4 and 5, what about that great love? Let's look at love and the second demonstration in verse 6. He mentions great love in verse 4, but I really believe in verse 6, We get to see it unfold. So the second demonstration is number two, to demonstrate his love. Why does God rescue sinners? What is the purpose behind his rescue? It's to demonstrate his love. Look with me again at verse six. 
He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, mercy in and of itself is certainly enough to shout for joy. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. I've been set free. No longer under condemnation. However, there is a colossal difference between being pardoned And I'm going to use Paul's language in chapter 1, being adopted. Not only has God demonstrated his rich mercy in delivering you from the death row that you and I deserve. Those of you that are in Christ. Not only has he done that, But with his great love, he's taken it a step further. He's seated you and raised you up with him. There are several connections that we need to make here. Connections that demonstrate just the immensity of this great love. First, I want you to see the significance of these two verbs, to be raised up and to be seated. The verb to be raised up is only used two other times in the New Testament. One other time in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Each time in reference, spiritually speaking, to being raised from dead death to life. The verb to be seated in all actuality carries more of a force of enthronement. So just with these two verbs alone, in this context, we begin to see that this great love is far greater than even the mercy, rich, loving kindness which God has bestowed upon you. Secondly, Where is the believer raised and seated? But with him. How precious, how sweet is that reality? As we consider this ramp up, if you will, from mercy to love. We've already seen some of this in chapter 1 verse 5 when Paul spoke of us being predestined to adoption as sons. Adoption. It's so much more than just being granted leniency. Or in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, he spoke of the sealing by the Spirit in our inheritance. So much more. And then here, the demonstration of such love only continues. It's far greater than leniency. If we were like children, some children in an orphanage, some who are alone, abused, and abandoned, 
We now, because of God's great love, hear the words intimately and personally of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, which says that I will never depart from you. I will never forsake you. I will never desert you. This is the significance of this love, this adoption, this inheritance. We are no longer alone, abused, or abandoned. What's more, not only do we hear the words of Hebrews 13 verse 5, we can speak forth the words of the following verse, Hebrews 13 verse 6, which says, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? How sweet, how precious is this great love for you, dear saint. And then thirdly, concerning, once again, this significance of being raised and seated with him. Look back at chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I want to show you a divine and breathtaking demonstration of God's love in connection to our passage here this morning. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 read, and you'll see the connection. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Do you see it, beloved? In that section, it's a prayer for the church's power. A power that the Father demonstrates through the Son. And not just a power, but a love and authority as he sets him at his right hand in heavenly places. Likewise, though, and here's the point. This is exactly what we see on display in our passage, chapter 2, verse 6. Much in the same way. That we see the greatest demonstration of love between the Father and the Son, unequal, will never be matched. We see a similar, lesser than, but beautiful application for the believer. Listen, we are not only granted amnesty, mercy. We have been granted citizenship, love. Just makes you want to bow down flat on your face. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, Paul calls it a citizenship in heaven. One which is only granted in Christ as you see at the end of verse 6. 
those two words, in Christ, as we've alluded to numerous times, a fitting connection to one of the primary purposes of the letter as a whole. This divine work of God, whether it be sanctification or salvation, is all through the agency of Christ. That is to say, only through Him and Him alone, apart from any work of man in Christ. This is what guarantees this great demonstration of God's love. Nevertheless, how does this, once again, impact us? How does this drive us to live with fervency and zeal and passion for Christ in all that we do in whatever area of life God has called you to? Let me answer that question with a historical illustration. What's often misunderstood about some past accounts of slavery is that the actual love and appreciation servants had for their master in some cases. In some cases, the slavery was, in all reality, more of an employment, you might say, or protection against the surrounding environment in some cases. Not to mention the servants were loved and respected so much so that in certain cases these servants desired to return love and respect. That said, How do you view your king, your master, in whom you serve today? Do you see him as a gracious and loving God who, oh yes, disciplines those whom he loves? Or do you see him as a harsh task? Master, if we fully appreciate his rich mercy and his great love that drives us to even greater heights of loyalty and allegiance to serve him with all of our heart and soul, what does that look like for you? How has God called you to serve him here and now? Because of his mercy and love, do we desire to return our loyalty to him? And not just return our loyalty to him as somewhat of what we're expected to do, but to do so with a, a heart and a, and a mind and a, and a soul that desires in love to return that service to Him. That's exactly 
what he did for you and for me. In light of our return of service unto him, we could take it even a step further and say, does that drive us because of this great mercy and this great love to to give that to others? Ask yourself, why am I serving Christ? Is it just the checkbox because it's what I'm expected to do? Or is it a deep compulsion within you, grounded in your love for this wonderful, redeeming, and rescuing Savior? That's the kind of obedience that will stand the test of time. Amen? With that said, let's look at the final demonstration from verse 7, and that's number 3, to demonstrate His glory. Look at verse 7 again. So that, there's that great purpose clause. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What would we expect? Everything that God does is for his glory. We've seen this throughout, even in chapter 1 surrounding divine salvation. Chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Or in verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Election, redemption, adoption, sealing of the Spirit. All of these are for the praise of His glory. And then likewise, here in verse 7, once again, why does he bestow such rich mercy and great love to demonstrate his glory, or at the end of verse 7, his grace? Whether it's his mercy or his love, all for his glory, it is extraordinary. It is abundant. And it is unmerited. What's more, it all demonstrates the glory of God. Now, in light of radical depravity from last week, which is surely a reason and a demonstration of God's justified wrath on sinners. Clearly a reason and a demonstration. Although today, along with His mercy and His love, all for His glory, I want to land this plane so to speak, on a perfect illustration for it all. From Romans chapter 9, 
verses 22 and 23. You can reference it later. Just an unspeakable, unfathomable passage of Scripture. Right preceding verses 22 and 23, Paul is taken up the gauntlet, if you will, to tear down the arguments made against the sovereignty of God in salvation. And then following that, he says the following in chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for his glory. Hallelujah. The full scope and gamut of God's character and nature on display. From a proper purpose perspective, certainly the cave of radical depravity allows God to demonstrate His holiness, His justice, and His wrath, which is good. Amen? Although, in the sovereign and infinite plan, and mind of God, it also demonstrates His mercy and His love. All for what? Sola Dea Gloria to the glory of God alone. That said, I have one final question for you. If the ultimate purpose in God's rescue of sinners is His divine glory, would that be your purpose for everything that you say and do? Listen, I understand and I'm with you. Some days are better than others for us all. We all fall short Do we not? But it's not an excuse. We have the power of the Spirit within us. And I'm preaching to myself, church. By God's grace, would a passage such as this cause us to revel in His mercy Therefore, return our loyalty unto Him. In whatever capacity God has called you right now, to bask in His love, which just soothes over us. Therefore, to return our service 
yet with also a motivation of love. And then to bow before his glory. Those of you that have been with us on Wednesday, we're working our way through the book of Psalms. In Psalms chapter 2, the writer says to pay homage to this king. The word literally means to repeatedly kiss him. As we desire to pay homage to this king, to bow before his glory, desiring the glory of God alone, opposed to the accolades of men. Is that our desire? Is that our hope? You see, we can do that. Why? Because the dead do come to life. Amen? God rescues and resuscitates with his divine defibrillator the dead man. We are alive in Christ with him. Let's go forward with courage, with confidence, with love, with mercy, by the power that resides in the Holy Spirit within us. Amen? With a smile on our face, and I know I say this too much, a bounce in our step. But I like it, so I'm going to keep saying it. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we worship your name. The name above all names, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's unfathomable. Who can know the mind of God that before all eternity and in your infinite wisdom, you set your mind within the triune Godhead in perfect unity to call us by name. To grant us pardon. To bestow your love all for your glory. Dear Lord, for those of us in this room that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We thank you. Help us, oh God, to live for you. And once again, Lord, if there be anyone here within this room still under the weight and the pressure of a guilty conscience of sin, would you call them? Would you draw them? By your grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory. In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.